Hello and welcome back to the Psychedelics in Medicine podcast, where we discuss the future of psychedelic and alternative drug therapy with leading academics at the top of their fields in all things scientific. Last week we discussed heroin-assisted treatment, looking at the history, science, studies and therapeutic uses of heroin, one of the best-known opiates. This week we will be taking a deep dive into LSD. Hi. I'm Ben Clayden, student at the University of York, studying natural sciences, specialising in neuroscience. I'm also the president of my university's Psychedelics in Medicine Society. Once again, I'm here today with Dr. Torsten Passi. Dr. Passi is a German psychiatrist, professor at Hanover Medical School, and is an expert in altered states of consciousness. Torsten has performed clinical and experimental studies on numerous psychoactive and psychedelic compounds ranging from nitrous oxide to MDMA to ketamine. He is also a leading authority in the pharmacology of LSD. Today we will be studying a substance that Torsten has written the most comprehensive book about, the pharmacology and effects of LSD, which combines data from over 3,000 studies and has been published by the Oxford University Press. Good afternoon, Torsten. Good afternoon, Ben. Right, so we have quite a lot to discuss today, starting from LSD's synthesis to its infamous stigma, and finally a dive into its rich history in science, psychiatry, and medicine. Let's begin with a background. Torsten, are you able to tell us about the initial discovery of LSD? Yeah, uh, that's a pretty, pretty interesting um, thing to talk about. Um, so the uh, how LSD originated. Uh, it originated in a uh, nature uh, products lab at Sandoz Pharmaceutical Company in Switzerland. And they, at that time, they were um, eager to find out about the um, ergot fungus and the alkaloids in the ergot fungus, which have been known to be good for treating migraines and bleedings after birth and other things. And so they try to figure out what kind of substances are in this plant. It's in fact a mushroom which is growing on a plant as a parasite, so to say. And they, um, uh, at first they extracted all the compounds from that fungus, which has been known to be used in medicine for different purposes. And uh, during that uh, evaluation and ex extraction of the substances, at last, they came up with the idea, okay, let's modify some of these substances to try to get better effects and less side effects. That's an usual thing in pharmacology research or pharmacological research to do that. And so they synthesized some derivatives of the uh, lysergic, the core of the molecule, lysergic, lysergic acid. And so the 25th of that of these derivatives was LSD 25. This is why it's called 25. Uh, it was the 25th derivative which which they have synthesized and tested. Uh, interestingly enough, then they they synthesized the substance. They put it into some animals to look for a general rough estimates of the effects, but they couldn't find really something. So they came to the conclusion: Oh, that's not interesting. Let's put it on the shelf. They put it on the shelf. A few years later, Albert Hofmann, the discoverer of LSD, was also in charge of the synthesis of these derivatives, came by an intuition to the idea, okay, let's go back to this one substance called LSD and look, give it a second try. And then he resynthesized it and during the process, it seems that he absorbed some of the material, a very small amount, but he kind of was going into a slightly altered state and he had no explanation about it. And so he thought, okay, that was impressive. It must have to do with the substance which I've recently synthesized. And he came to the conclusion, maybe I absorbed something through my fingers. Today, we think more about absorption through the lung. Uh, but however, he got some material in the system and he came to the conclusion, okay, it might have to, to do with that substance. And I will take another hit of the substance, but a very, very small amount, the smallest amount you could imagine for a medication or for 
pharmacological agent at the time. So he took, in fact, 250 micrograms, which is looked at today as a kind of larger dose. What happened to him? He was in his lab still when he took the drug, and he was really altered. So he came up with the idea, okay, let's go home to be in a more secure place and a more agreeable place. And this is a, a so-called bicycle ride of Albert Hofmann when he was going by bicycle to his home. I think an assistant was on his side and he was very much irritated. And in fact, this was a horror trip. Not so much people think about that, how the trip really was. But if you look at his descriptions, it's obvious that he had a panic and horror trip because he didn't know what happened to him and he might go crazy forever. That was his uh, fear. And so when he came home, he, um, uh, he uh, called for the doctor and the doctor came and found him in a very good physiological state. So everything was all right from his perspective. And so later when the effects were waning, he came up with the idea, oh, that's not a bad state. Let's, let's, uh, let's enjoy it. And the last third of the trip was enjoyable, but the other part not. And why I'm telling you that so extensively, the point is today we are talking about microdosing. Uh, what, what happened is that all the researchers afterwards, even Hofmann, just take one-tenth of this full dose because they were all in fear that they might make people psychotic or Hofmann making himself psychotic again. He don't want to do that. And so they all took in between 10 and 50 mics, not more. And the first study conducted with LSD in a systematic fashion was at uh, Zurich University Psychiatric Hospital in 1980, uh, 1946. And uh, in this study, just doses around 10 to, to 50 micrograms were used. And they found quite a bit of effects. And interestingly enough, these effects seem to have a psychological impact as well as psychological content, which could be usable in psychotherapy. And that was uh, the, the impact what that publication by Werner Stoll, uh, who was a psychiatrist in charge of the study, it, it caused a sensation on an international level that we they might have found a psychotherapeutic Kelly usable drug. And this later on, uh, even I think from 1949 onwards, they, uh, Sandoz sended samples of LSD out to uh, psychotherapy researchers and psychologists and other researchers to be used in psychotherapy and even the user's manual, that one page kind of thing, what they send it out with the material was saying this uh, substance is um, usable for three purposes for research, experimental research, whatever kind. Uh, as a psychotherapeutic agent in lower doses to be used in psychoanalytic-like uh, therapeutic procedures. And the third uh, thing was that psychiatrists might get unusual insights into the strange world of the psychotic or schizophrenic patients. This was the background story of the early years of the discovery of LSD, yes. That's, yeah, really interesting. I actually didn't know that a lot of the dosage were what we would now say microdosing. Um, yeah, I would have thought there would have been higher dosages, but that's a yeah, really interesting point to make. Thank you, Torsten. Um, so, as you said, LSD was synthesized and we had this kind of first wave in around the 1940s. And about 10, 20 years later, it had really become, or started to become quite in the centre of psychiatry. And so there's a lot of hype over this. So, um, Obviously, the kind of the scientific methods and the precautions that we take now in most of the studies nowadays were very different in the 50s and 60s. So are you able to give us a history of some of the initial experiments that LSD was being used in? Yeah, sure. Um, interestingly enough, the, most of the studies which were beginning very early in the uh, 1950 and 1951 2, 3, uh, these were psychotherapists, which have been inspired by that early publication by Werner Stoll and all these psychodynamic phenomena which have been shown in these experiments to be there. And um, therefore, you could say the first phase was about uh, its use in psychotherapy. Uh, during the 1950s, there was also the discovery of serotonin, the first neurotransmitter. And because LSD was very similar to serotonin, it was thought by a lot of researchers uh, looking for the causes of psychosis, 
or schizophrenia, that there might be a kind of metabolic uh, pathway in the brain of these uh, schizophrenics, which might have been altered a certain way and produces a very minuscule amount of a certain strange substance, which might alter brain function as a whole, as it can be seen with LSD. 100 micrograms are able to completely change your mindset. And so they thought it might be a pathological metabolic pathway, which leads to psychosis by producing LSD-like substances. That was one other way of research. And uh, also it was obvious that um, LSD is influencing the serotonin system. And so it was uh, becoming an uh, experimental agent to look what the serotonin system can do and is actually doing in the human organism. So there were a lot of studies in that respect, also with animals, a lot of basic research. And uh, it is appropriate to mention here uh, that LSD, believe it or not, but that's the truth, um, is the, the most extensively studied pharmacological agent ever in human history. There are around 10,000 publications about it. You can't find any other pharmacological agent or pharmaceutical substance or medical substance which has been researched so extensively. This was due to the, to the boost of the neurotransmitter research in the 1950s and in the 1960s and also all these different facets of this substance from religious experiences to psychotherapy, to inducing psychotic-like states, to uh, be uh, able to study the uh, serotonin system and other interactions with neurotransmitter systems and so on. It was pretty interesting. And even if since the 1970s, we just found animal research up to a few years ago, uh, it's still that uh, most researched pharmacological agent ever. Yeah, I, it, that's a, again, an absolutely brilliant fact. And I think it really shows quite clearly the fact that people, there was a lot of belief in LSD and there was a lot of discovery going on then with the neuroscience and psychopharmacology and that side. However, inevitably, there was also some perhaps more negative research um, going on at this time using LSD. And one thing that's quite infamous was there was the, the CIA gained quite a large interest in LSD. Um, one of the best known studies is MKUltra, or the mind control experiments. Are you able to talk to us about some of the less, eth less ethical studies that were performed in the 60s, please? Yeah, sure. Pretty interesting topic uh, was the, um, uh, how the military was trying to make use of, out of LSD. So uh, the background is that during the 1930s, uh, it seems that the uh, Nazis in Germany um, under Hitler, uh, the dictator, they were trying to do everything to get some some uh, informations out of spies or double agents and so on. Um, and so they used uh, substances like mescaline, scopolamine, and morphine in experimental procedures, interrogations, in fact, in concentration camps. And the Americans became aware of that in the early 1940s, and they thought by themselves, okay, we to be up to date, we also have to conduct these kinds of experiments. Then they started a very little bit of experimentation with not that much success. However, during the uh, 1950s, when the Korean War was going on, uh, some uh, pilots were captured by the Koreans and they were put it in front of courts because they, they did war crimes from the perspective of the Korean people. And so what happened there is that these guys were claiming that they have used biological weapons on the Korean people, which was forbidden by international treaties. And so the Americans claimed that these guys, these pilots have been brainwashed to, to make these statements. Um, by the way, 50 years later, it was found out that they really used biological weapons. However, at wow. that point, they, they claim they're not and blah, blah, blah. And so they, they were out for brainwashing. So they thought the best defense against brainwashing is that we try to, to do brainwashing and then to try to find countermeasures, right? And this is the reason why they did more experimentation in that direction. 
at first they thought, okay, mescaline, if we give the people mescaline, it's so heavily disturbing the cogn cognitive uh, abilities and the psychological state that the people get might get so much confused that they couldn't consistently answer questions anymore. And so they were thinking, oh man, that's really hard. We can't do it with these substances. The people are too much irritated. And other more comprehensive controlled experiments have shown that it's not so easy to irritate a person that way that they spit out relevant information which should have been kept secret. It's not so easy to do that. At last they found out just as an anecdote here in that interview, it is, they found out that an, a mixture of pure THC with some other materials might be the most appropriate uh, truth revealing agent, so to say, but not mescaline. They came to the conclusion, okay, mescaline is not the ideal drug for that. We should have more specific drugs. And then they, were be they began to test MDA and MDE so MDMA-like substances, in fact, to be more specific, not putting so much mental confusion on the brain, but being more uh, alert and cognitively present, and but still suggestible more than usual, more friendly than usual, and these kind of things which could be uh, made use of in interrogation procedures. So there was some research going on in respect to MDMA-like substances, but they also had some people uh, having very strange reactions to it, as well as some people were dying from it. And therefore, they were eager to test more substances in a toxicological fashion, more comprehensively, so that these kind of accidents will not happen anymore. During that animal toxicology research, LSD came, uh, uh, showed up on the scene, and they thought, oh man, LSD, very minuscule amounts have to be absorbed, no, no odor, no color, no taste with LSD. So that might be the ideal substance to put in somebody's drinks or even put it in the water reservoirs of, uh, of plane carriers, right? So that they all go crazy and stuff. This is also, by the way, the reason why they did research on very small substances. The most comprehensive research stems from the military in that respect, because I think they were out for, okay, if you have a full intoxication, we know what will happen. But if you have your windows closed or drink just a little bit from their, your water on that day, and yet then you see others go crazy, so you don't drink anymore, what happens to you if you just have taken 50 mics? let's say, will you still act like crazy or will you be able to control yourself and, and do the right weapons at the right point and stuff like that. So, um, however, uh, during the late 1960s, they also began uh, experiments with uh, putting aerosols over whole cities and stuff like that. That, But that didn't work out, uh, out as well. And the conclusion from these experiments, they, I've quoted that in my Pharmacology of LSD book, uh, was um, it is like uh, you have an, uh, um, a revolver or an, a cannon, uh, which is uh, firing different caliber shells without your control in an erratic fashion in whatever direction. You can't steer that. You can't guide that. And so therefore they came to the conclusion, oh, no, let's not do that. They might push the red button and even ignite atom bombs and stuff like that. So you don't know what these crazy going people will do. And on YouTube, you could see also video clips where they have given it to military personnel on a kind of parade or something. And they were in the middle of the thing. They were completely going crazy, being confused, laughing at the Leutnants and, and all that kind of stuff. Or, or even uh, going uh, um, uh, climbing, uh, climbing trees and speaking to the birds and these kind of things have happened and you can see them on the YouTube videos, they are original from that time. So they thought, oh, it, it's uh, too crazy, we can't use that. Then in the late 1960s, they also evaluated their experiments in using hallucinogenic drugs for military purposes, mainly interrogations of agents and, and enemies captured. Uh, and they came to the conclusion, no, that's not the right way to do it. We have to use physical torture. So that was their paradigm at the end of all these experiments. 
Absolutely, uh, utterly mind-boggling. Um, just to know that those actually have existed in the past, and the fact that they're well, some of these you know are still up on YouTube and stuff, as you said. It's yeah. I thoroughly recommend everyone to check those out. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, they have also. By the way, they have also uh, made uh, people play chess. Soldiers playing chess on very low doses of LSD. And by the way, uh, all of them performed worse, even I think with 35 micrograms. So it seems that the more complex behaviors or, or thought operations are uh, easier to disturb than the more primitive ones. Yeah, that was a conclusion from that. That's also utterly, utterly interesting. What I only can assume will become more of a trend in our podcast series, as we start to close in the 1960s, there was a significant decline and uh, eventual stop in the research of LSD. Nowadays, that's primarily blamed on Richard Nixon and the war on drugs. So let's fast forward now to the 21st century and have a look at some current therapeutic studies, the pharmacology and derivatives of LSD. Now. We have not yet discussed the neurobiological mechanisms or psychological effects of LSD. Gratefully, I can think of no better person to ask these questions than, uh, than you, Torsten, uh, as you have not only published an extensive review on the pharmacology of LSD, but have written a book we mentioned earlier of the same title. So, are you able to begin to break down the pharmacology of LSD for us, please, Torsten? Yeah, okay, we, there are different levels of that issue, and I want to do the more simple ones very shortly. Um, uh, so uh, it, um, it is known that LSD is having a duration of action in between uh, 7 to 10 hours, depending on the dose. That's one thing. Uh, the thing is that if you take low doses of LSD, you might experience a, experience a, a kind of daydream-like alteration of your consciousness with a tendency for introspection, with a little bit more feelings, more associations, more imagery. Very unthreatening, usually. If you take higher doses, your ego might be affected by being not functional anymore as much, and also your access to your experiences in the past to evaluate the present might be not as good as before. One example uh, I can give for that is that um, a former girlfriend of mine was taking LSD with a group of friends. I think there were five in all uh, when she was 25. And uh, so one of these guys were playing guitar with, uh, but he hadn't a plectron available. So he used a splinter of a glass from, from a broken bottle, right, as a plectron. No problem with that. But by chance, he opened his artery on the arm. So oh. the, the blood was really going out like a fontaine, fontaine. And the other guys were laughing about him and saying, oh, look how funny that looks and the color, man funny and you know they were laughing about him they did not realize that he was in a life-threatening situation and this is a good example that people don't have the conceptual knowledge anymore what how dangerous that situation was he was at last rescued by himself <laughs> because the others were really not able to help him yeah and this is uh, if you take higher doses your conceptual issue and your access to your past experiences is not as consistent as usual. And also the ego functions, which is uh, related to empathy, for example, controlling of your uh, emotions, uh, self-reflection, these kind of ego functions or functions of your eye uh, are not available as much anymore. And so you are much more irritable in, with the higher doses. Uh, if it comes to even higher doses, your ego might get dissolved or is kind of gone. Yeah, that can be an interesting and agreeable experience if it goes in the direction of a smooth ego dissolution into a kind of mystical state of connectedness. But this is not um, not a regular uh, thing, uh, not a regular occurrence. Uh, and it needs specific circumstances usually because otherwise, if you're not going to heaven, you might go to hell. 
in the uh, uh, terms of Aldous Huxley uh, and psychedelic explorer of the first generation. And uh, he wrote a book about heaven and hell. So you could also land in hell in a psychotic state where everything is deformed, your, your perception is fragmented and stuff like that. Uh, some people, even in the so-called psychedelic therapy settings, also experience a lot of fear and panic. If you look at the data sets more carefully, you will see that, especially if it comes to higher doses of psilocybin, they might have a positive aspect of the experience in mystical connectedness, but they might also go through passages of a high, high fear. Yeah. And so we. this is uh, how we look at the uh, um, uh, seeing what uh, LSD does to your psychological state. You have more imagery, more emotions, different associations, usually broadened and more remote associations come into play. And you might also re-experience experiences from your childhood, depending on the setting at a party, you might not go that way. But in a therapeutic setting, it's kind of automatically coming up, especially these kind of traumatic experiences and so on, and other significant events which you might have experienced in the past. So um, in respect to other things, we know that cognitive abilities, for example, under the influence of LSD are very much altered. Um, not always in a positive sense. And if you look at your cognitive functions with the conventional instruments, you will find that everything gets worse. There might be a very few experiments which have shown that your psychomotor abilities, how to handle a pencil in a very diff difficult way and stuff, that might be bettered somewhat with, with low doses, but otherwise your cognition is quite a bit disturbed. Yeah, there were also interactions with other substances from a pharmacological point of view. For example, um, the use of antidepressant drugs, you, if you would use them in parallel, so to say, or since a few weeks or months, and then you take LSD, the response is weakened quite a bit. Um, why does that is, occur? Sorry. Yeah, so if you alter your serotonin systems and system, and this is what these drugs essentially do, even if there is zero proof that depression is dependent on serotonin, even if the opposite is propagated uh, always and everywhere, but it's definitely not true. And you can look up PubMed and other bibliographies, you will easily find that there is no connection to serotonin even. Uh, but uh, however, there, it seems that the LSD response can be blunted by a chronic influence on the serotonin system done by these drugs. And so therefore we can explain that. It is also worth mentioning that, for example, the neuroleptic drugs would be used to treat psychosis and minimize psychotic symptoms. They are also kind of against the LSD reaction. So if it means if you take a neuroleptic in advance of an LSD trip, you the LSD trip will be much, much weakened. And uh, even more interesting is the use of benzodiazepines together with LSD. For example, if you would take LSD, 150 micrograms, let's say a usual dose, uh, together with 20 milligrams of diazepam, a well-known uh, benzodiazepine drug, you will not experience anything from the LSD trip. So that even might be a kind of uh, antidote. And this is not my story. This is also written in the uh, special literature about how to cope with a bad LSD trip, you give the patient an intravenous injection of diazepam in the range of 5 to 10 milligrams, depending on the state. And I've seen this under controlled condition in therapeutic settings, and it worked quite well. It means the patients were sober afterwards, were not sleepy, even if they were yawning a little bit, but uh, they were completely normal afterwards, even if they were before they were on a horror trip and very high anxiety levels and irritation and ego dissolution kind of things, all gone after an intravenous injection of benzodiazepines, which is, by the way, the first line treatment of bad LSD trips. So these are some other facts about the pharmacology of LSD. There are others, more unusual things. For example, they have uh, tried LSD on schizophrenics to try to find out, could they differentiate between their original hallucinations and the LSD-induced hallucinations? And the short answer is, yes, they can. It's quite easy because also of the fact that uh, LSD is mainly doing alterations in the visual sphere, 
while schizophrenia is mainly giving you hallucinations or pseudo hallucinations in the acoustical sphere. So these people experience voices coming from nowhere, from inside them, from the Russians, transmitted by their satellites or whatever kind of imagination and theories they have about it. Yeah. And so, um, but if you really look deeper in this literature, which has, these experiments have been done 50 times or so in different ways and different settings, and they say uh, schizophrenics have a higher resistance against LSD, so they could cope with higher doses. We could make up the theory, I've looked into the literature in very, detail, very much detail, and you could say, no, the, the instruments for measuring response were not appropriate at that time. And so they didn't look out uh, much fine-grained enough for these phenomena. And if you are a person which has been hallucinated for years, you know, you might be more resistant about unusual sensations. You, you might cope with them more easily. You, you might not go crazy from them in that sense. You might not get anxiety from them because you know that kind of stuff, you know, even in a different way, more, uh, more acoustical, less visual and so on. But, you know, this is, uh, um, uh, to my eyes, um, not quite clear if they really react less than usual humans. Um, other experiments were about, for example, um, you, if you have a first degree relative in your family which has schizophrenia, you might have a higher vulnerability in that direction. This is discussed in the psychiatric literature. Uh, but what was interesting, a guy from Greek in the early 1960s did an experiment where, experiment where he had a kind of control group of 24 patients, uh, of 24 normals. And he also had a, uh, the experimental group consisted of also normals, but they all had a first degree related with a psychotic disease. And it could have, he could show that that uh, all, virtually all of these guys had a much more strange reaction to LSD than the, all the groups of the normals without a psychotic relative. This is also, uh, I think, pretty interesting. Uh, if it comes to the brain damage uh, from all these thousands of studies, the issue of brain damage, yeah, it is virtually not there because there was zero evidence in that direction. The only evidence they had was yeah, there were some people which got a psychotic reaction from it, blah, blah, blah. But meanwhile, even today, the consensus in the scientific literature is that you can develop a psychotic illness with an LSD trip or after an LSD trip, but just if you have the predisposition already. So you, you will develop that psychotic disease anyway, but it might be induced earlier in the course of your life by an LSD trip. There is a certain chance of that. But for example, in our studies with psilocybin, uh, we, and with LSD, with Hans Karloiner, we came to the conclusion, okay, let's not include guys which have a first degree relative with a psychotic disease. So then you could easily avoid that. But the numbers of so-called prolonged, prolonged psychotic reaction was uh, very small anyway. And if you look at these studies which have been conducted about the experimental use of LSD in normal volunteers, there were some retrospective uh, uh, surveys if this was a dangerous kind of experimentation and so on, but they have shown that the induction of prolonged, prolonged psychotic reactions and other strange things were not above the average with every other substance. And so, under safe clinical conditions, medically supervised, the chance that you might uh, develop an unusual reaction, uh, which is harming you or being uh, presenting a danger to you is so low that it is virtually zero. Brilliant, Totten. Thank you very much. Okay, um, are, we are you able to talk to us a little bit about the neurobiological side of it, a potential mechanism which uh, psychedelics may work through? and one that we can then understand why we see these kind of positive effects in clinical practice. Yeah, so um, about the neurobiology of hallucinogenic drugs, a lot has been studied. 
Uh, mostly basic research. Uh, during the last 25 years, we also were able to look into the living brain by analyzing metabolic patterns and also how the different networks and areas of the brain work together. Uh, first off, we had the possibility to use PET scannings, or no, there was even um, earlier research. They had a method how to evaluate the um, um, the blood circulation in the brain. That method was brought up, to, and it's a very reliable method during the 1950s. And uh, the first study on LSD and brain uh, circulation has shown that there was no alteration in respect to whole brain perfusion, but they were not able to look at different regions. Uh, and the blood flow is just one thing, metabolic activation, it's a different deal. And so in the, in the 1990s, they were able with positron emission tomography to look at the uh, metabolic activation of different parts of the brain. And what they have shown there is that the forebrain is somewhat activated by LSD and, and that the thalamus in the, mid, in the middle of the brain, which is a kind of relay structure, you know, where your sensory signals go through and will be regulated and stuff and filtered, this seems to be also activated, means there is more activity in the salamus, and that means the salamus is giving more stimuli to the brain. So more stimuli reach the brain from inside your body as well as from the outside in respect to sensory perception and so on. That is, so frontal activation, uh, the 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 opening of the salamic filter mechanism, if you want, and a certain limbic and paralimbic activation. So the limbic system is also in the middle of the brain. And uh, it is uh, said that these structures generate our emotions, right? So you have an emotional activation, you have an, an uh, less filtering of stimuli, and you have a, more, a higher activation in the frontal brain. This was a result from the PET studies, but they had no idea at that point in time how the regions of the brain work together. We could see activation there, activation there, deactivation at this uh, at this region and so on. Um, with more modern instrument like the uh, functional magnetic resonance imaging method, um, one could meanwhile analyze how the parts of the brain work together. This method, by the way, is not that much reliable reliable as it is suggested today. There are a lot of methodological artifacts involved because the statistical and physical uh, um, procedures which have to be applied to these data sets are very highly vulnerable uh, about artifacts. So you have to have large studies which haven't been conducted up to now to really say this is a reliable result. Otherwise, you have some hypothesis which might, which might be um, um, uh, which might be stabilized by some of these data sets. So, what have they found out? So, what they found is that if you put LSD in the brain, then it seems that the networks which are there for different tasks, you know, for example. Uh, the task of doing an action in the outside world is one network to uh, to steer your attention at certain points. You need another network. And there's also a network for uh, how to cope with social situations and stuff like that. So you have di different network at networks at work, which are in themselves have a certain connectivity to other parts of the brain so that they can work as a network. This is called, this is why they call networks. And they, in themselves, if you get depressed, for example, the networks in themselves get more connections, but they have less connections to each other. So the, the, the connectivity in between the networks is somewhat reduced. This is after they have reached these results, the group around David Mutt in London, they came up with the idea, okay, if we can, with these drugs, we can intensify global connectivity in between the networks, and we can loosen somewhat the connectivity inside the networks, so we can do something which is the opposite of being depressed. Have, being depressed is having less 
inter-network connectivity, so to say, and having more intra-network connectivity. And so we can dynamite that off for a few hours. And therefore, we might, the people are very much in a depressed state, and then they ruminate with their thoughts going around without any results, just torturing them. You know, and you might have here a kind of, yeah, you could even say shock method where you kind of kick the brain in the ass, so to say, to, to dynamite people out of their usual frame of mind, to open their soul, to open their mind up to their uh, original possibility somewhat more. It is also logic that if you have been impregnated by an, a depressive state for, let's say, three years, even if somebody is kicking you in the, your ass, you might fall down, you might be in a different state, but three weeks later, you're in the same state again, because these structures can be altered as much. You know, If you have no support after having a mystical experience of connectedness, in, in a way, the opposite of being in a depressed state, feeling isolated, in a depressed mood, very non-open about the environment and other people, you know, you might experience completely the opposite. That might help your process to become healthy quite a bit, but also you still have all the problems inside your psyche, which have led to that state. And you also have all the outside problems, a mobbing working place, um, a, a non-functioning partnership, and, 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 and children with ADHD, stuff like that. You know, not your sorrows are not all gone, even if you don't feel them in a depressed way as much, you know? And so therefore we have to contextualize these alterations and have to give them support in advance of a session and especially afterwards and on a much more longer way as it is thought uh, today. Yeah, these were the two main mechanisms where you can look at the effects of these drugs. There are hypothetically some other mechanisms, but they have not researched as much, and uh, therefore I don't mention that in detail here. Brilliant. Uh, amazing. Thank you very much for that nice and clear explanation. Um, and you've actually moved us on to the next segment, which is brilliant, where we now we have a nice understanding of the neurobiology. We can start to have a look at the picture of what LSD looks like in the medical industry nowadays. So Torsten, are you able to outline the current ideas of LSD-assisted psychotherapy, what therapies we're using it with, and what it actually looks like, as well as what people are being targeted with this? Yeah, sure. Um, uh, first off, we have to differentiate in between, uh, you could say, three different methods of using LSD in a psychotherapeutic fashion. So uh, first off was the psycholytic method, which is low-dose LSD sessions in a serial way. It means serial sessions in between 5 to 25 sessions with low-dose LSD in a more or less conventional psychoanalytically directed setting. And you have to remember uh, that uh, during the 1950s and 60s and 70s, psychoanalysis was very much dominant in psychiatry as well as in uh, uh, psychotherapy. And so therefore it was an easy thing that we could integrate these drugs into established settings and also theoretically mod theoretical models which fit quite well in a way. And even if you look at Stan Gross book, The Realms of the Human Unconscious from the mid 1970s, his most comprehensive descriptions of his research, you will find out in the introduction that the main basis for this was psycholytic work, what Stan Groff conducted in Prague in Czechoslovakia during the 1950s until the mid 1960s. And so psycholytic therapy, low dose serial sessions implemented in a clinical environment in a psychoanalytic framework, that was the dominant approach worldwide. And uh, so this was um, upcoming since the early 1950s, and it was going throughout the 1980s, especially in Czechoslovakia, in the Netherlands, and in Germany. There were some professors still allowed to use that drug in a psychotherapeutic fashion, especially with a psycholytic approach. Now we come to the other main approach, which is the so-called psychedelic approach, also named psychedelic peak therapy. And that means you are trying to give the patient just one or two sessions with higher doses 
to induce a, an ego dissolution with mystical overtones, which means that you feel connected to everybody, to everything, to the whole world, so to say. So that might give you a completely different outlook on your life and how you conduct your life and what is important in life and what your values should be and stuff like that. And they have seen this in uh, Indians or indigenous uh, people in the US and Canada. And therefore this approach came out uh, of that because it was known that during the peyote church rituals in which the uh, Native Americans use uh, the mescaline containing peyote cactus in um, uh, uh, indigenous rituals, they have seen that a lot of sociopathic individuals as well as alcoholics became free of their diseases because of partaking in these uh, mescaline uh, um, induced states in a ritualistic setting. And so they came up with the idea when LSD showed up as a possible therapeutic agent, they saw, thought, okay, let's give them higher doses of LSD to induce. At first, they thought about a delirium, which might stay, that makes them stay away from alcohol. But later on, immediately they found out that mystical experiences can be induced, which might change an alcoholic's life, even if he was treatment resistant before. And um, uh, the Canadians were the, uh, the pioneers with that approach, but a few American clinics were also doing psychedelic therapy. Very much less uh, psychedelic therapy was conducted than psycholytic therapy. I would say 20 to 30% of the therapeutic applications were psychedelic, the rest was psycholytic. And um, it was just distributed on the uh, US, uh, North American continent, the psychedelic approach. Um, it has a certain temptation, which is that you can uh, treat a person which was treatment resistant before with one or two sessions and a few hours of psychotherapy to heal the patients. Yeah, but you know these claims from uncontrolled studies, we know that from a few years ago with David Nutt's study, which was also uncontrolled and gave very good results. The later results from the controlled studies were much less good. That means that in the 1960s, the, the rumor, as Ben has mentioned, uh, it's still a legend uh, that the research was stopped because of the illegal use of these drugs. This is just partially true. The real truth is that they, the government, the US government was very much interested in treating alcoholics, especially treatment resistant ones because they produce a lot of costs in different respects. And so they thought, okay, if we can establish a, a therapy with the help of LSD, we will still do it. And so they said, okay, let's finance some very good controlled methodologically sound studies. But all of these four studies, which they have financed, did not show up with good results in favor of LSD therapy. Even the, the most uh, aficionado ones in Spring Grove in Maryland, even their results were not as good. And so they left that approach for being not effective. That is the truth. And there was no financing anymore because the, the approach wasn't worth it. But today we are very much again uh, underway with the psychedelic approach because the psychiatrists and other uh, more flat thinkers uh, seem to be eager to find a method to treat a patient with one or two sessions you know, using a pharmacological agent and, and dynamiting the brain from an encrusted patterns out of encrusted patterns and so on. But um, I personally don't believe as much in this method. And it seems that the success is not as durable. And this is also has been shown in the um, 1960s. There were also controlled uh, methodological sound studies treating neurotics uh, neurotic persons with uh, the psychedelic approach, giving them one or two sessions. These uh, uh, experiments also has, have proven that it is not effective to do so. And therefore, we can be skeptic if the psychedelic approach with just one or two sessions will be um, sufficient to treat uh, major uh, psychiatric diseases as depression, anxiety disorders, and so on. We in Europe never believed in that as much in the psychedelic approach because we were 
looking at patients more chronically ill that they need a more chronic kind of treatment, so to say, to come out of these uh, unagreeable states. And uh, so we used LSD and psilocybin as an add-on to psychotherapy. But the psychotherapy is still the main thing, not the pharmacology, pharmacological action of the substance. And so therefore, these are kind of different approaches. And we will see in the future, whenever uh, studies about psycholytic therapy will come up again, that that might uh, be the more appropriate approach, especially for people which have been chronically ill. But let me do an uh, important addition to my statement, which is, my personal impression from uh, 25 years of clinical work with these substances in therapeutic settings is that these substances moderate self-healing. And that means the more salutogenetic forces you have inside your soul, in contrast to the pathogenetic forces, the more salutogenetic forces you have, it's obvious that the self-healing process, which can be induced and furthered by psychedelic drugs, might get more ground in you if you have more salutogenetic forces. And this is the background why these terminal cancer patients and patients with a life-threatening diagnosis profit much more from these experiences than usual depressive patients. You have to realize, if you, if you get cancer, it's not that you have to be a neurotic to get cancer. You can be completely healthy, performing very well in your social field. No problem, you don't have any problems, but you still might have a cancer diagnosis. And the impact of that diagnosis on your soul and your inner life might be that you get depressed, you get anxious, you might get socially isolated, you might see life in a very depressed fashion. And this can be very much changed by one or two psychedelic high-dose experiences because it kind of tr transports you out of your encrusted framework of anxieties, isolation, fear, depression, and so on. But your potential, your resilience, your salutogenetic forces were much higher and much more there than in a new chronic neurotic patient which has developed depression since three years, right? Or as an alcoholic, which has been an alcoholic for 10 or more years. This is a much more chronic condition than you're, you being impacted as a more or less healthy person by a life-threatening diagnosis and get depressed and full of anxiety and so on. So these, these people can be helped very much by the psychedelic method, I think, and because they can also do much more by themselves, which what they have learned during the experience, because they are more healthy and they are out of the, the, the tiny, the, the, the tightened uh, brain framework, which they have acquired through that impact of the diagnosis, right? So, and interestingly enough, uh, since the early 1960s, there have been studies about treating terminal cancer patients with the psychedelic approach and very successfully and also the results in the 1960s and early 1970s were even in the methodologically sound studies were very good and these have been also confirmed by newer studies since the 2000s and beyond um th thank you very much um you've sprung on perfect segue into the next part of the podcast where we will dive into some literature and today, uh, I've picked a journal written by you, Peter Gasser, Rick Doblin, and other, um, and other colleagues from 2014, titled LSD-Assisted Psychotherapy for Anxiety Associated with Life-Threatening Diseases. So, very closely related to what you were just discussing. We'll also hopefully be discussing the, uh, the follow-up study on qualitative, acute, and sustained side effects taken 12 months after these patients first underwent the assisted psychotherapy. Are you able to explain the motivations, methods, and results of this study for us in a bit more depth, please, Torsten? Yeah, um, so what we have seen is that LSD, uh, two LSD experiences can lower very much in this specific group of patients, as I already mentioned, um, 
uh, they, it, it can lower anxiety in the aftermath very much. And this reduction of anxiety is very uh, fundamental and it's also very durable. So these uh, guys were going, I think, down two thirds with their anxiety scores and that was durable for one year. That was astonishing because um, the trait anxiety, so the, the anxiety inherent in your character, it's usually kind of biologically determined, can also be lowered, it seems, to a, a high degree by an LSD session, which is kind of impossible by conventional psychotherapy. And in respect to the experiences that people make, it was also very interesting because we used not such a very high dose, we used a dose in the medium range. And it seems that uh, first off, all of the people which have partaken in the studies did enormously profit from it. And interestingly enough, if you look at the older studies, the more uh, good studies from the 1960s in respect to that population, you will see one third profited very much one third profited moderately, and one third did not profit from the experience. And if you look at our results, everybody profited moderately. And that means it could be true that if you take a little lower dose, the people might be able not just to experience a mystical kind of experience, they may serve through the whole spectrum of the LSD experience not the high dose uh, ego dissolution kind of thing, you know? And what we have seen is that in fact, the people had no one had a mystical experience in that study, if you look at the scores, and but they were what we called incomplete mystical experiences. What does it mean? When you look more closely at, what's the, at the description, in the, when we interviewed the people about their subjective experiences, we made some transcripts and we extracted from these transcripts the relevant passages. And we found that the people had a certain point when the experience at first, they were going into their anxiety up to panic yeah, and death anxiety and very fearful. And then at a certain point, and that was the case with virtually all of the patients, at a certain point, that completely changed and was transformed in a bright light, feeling very much warmth, feeling very much into a kind of space where you are completely safe, you know, and full, being full of trust. And this is exactly what has been stolen from the people, so to say, by the impact of that diagnosis, you know. And so they, they were going through the fear and came out at this kind of enlightened kind of trust gaining state. This is what I would call it. So it was an incomplete mystical experience because they did not have these overtones of ego dissolution as much, but they were feeling that trust on a very basic level. And that is also very durable as our results uh, show. Uh, in respect to the background of these um, emotional changes, it is obvious that LSD activates the emotions it also enhances imagery and a, a broader way of thinking about your situation, generating different perspectives on yourself, on the world, on God, on your behavior in respect to relationships and so on. So there are different aspects of the LSD experience which might further these changes and help them to be implemented into your everyday life. And so therefore, this um, uh, specific clientele, uh, like the uh, uh, people which have been impacted by a life-threatening diagnosis, these guys might be the ideal candidates to uh, profit from the psychedelic uh, therapy. But we have shown in that study that the psycholytic range of the experience might lead to more consistent results in all patients. So you're, you're not just having those ones which have been, have been uh, gone into ego dissolution and the mystical experience, they profit quite a bit, but the others don't. No, ours profit, all of them profited in the moderate range, but everybody profited. It seems that if you leave them alone, surfing through all the levels of the experience, that might have a more fundamental impact on the state afterwards and 
on virtually every patient of this group. Brilliant. Thank you very much for the summary. It sounds like a, well, a very incredibly noble study with some very positive and profound results as well, yeah, which that's is very true. important. Yeah, and um, also, just to mention, they also had a very experienced therapist, right? So this is also very important. So the results in studies might be, in fact, much better at first because you at first you have the first-class therapists. Later on, if it comes to the masses, so to say, then you have all the idiots, all the low performers also around. And so then the results might also change a bit. I see. <laughs> so as we begin to wrap up, today's podcast. Uh, I'd like to ask you a couple questions or a couple points, more so sure. focusing on LSD, assisted psychotherapy, because as you said, there are different forms of this therapy we can use and all different combinations and so on and so forth. In order for our future progression, for LSD assisted psychotherapy to, I think, I suppose, get better results and become more integrated into therapy as an accepted therapy, what needs to happen? What scientific information do we need to understand? What, yeah, if you might be able to give us some points and dollars to that. Yeah, so yeah, it's a good question, but my thoughts go in a different direction, I think, than your intention goes. And um, I think that in respect to the basic research about LSD, virtually everything has been done already. And we just want to me as an expert in that direction, uh, we want to use these drugs in a therapeutic fashion. And that means you give it to humans and you're out for their psychological reactions. And, you know, if you have more refined instruments at universities to look at the brain, it doesn't matter to you as a therapist. You have to work with, with the experiences which show up. And that means you are much more connected to the shaman 3000 years ago using mescaline on his patients or ayahuasca or psilocybin mushrooms or so, you're much more connected to his way of practicing than to a brain scan institute at uh, uh, Imperial College, right? So these kinds of, um, we have to look out today for treatment standards, for not overwhelming the patients, uh, to not having low performing therapists looking out for LSD to, high, to better their performance, uh, you have to look out for ethical standards in respect to the application of these uh, kind of therapies, which also have their dangers, suggestions uh, being uh, in a suggestible state. Uh, also, we know these megalomanic behaviors of some LSD therapists from the past. So we have to look out for the competence and integrity of the therapists. And we also have to look out for appropriate training programs. And for example, the, the uh, society, International Society for Substance Assisted Psychotherapy, which we recently founded, is exactly looking out for that, for an international consensus on how to conduct a training or in what direction it should go. And right now, for example, we are in the danger again, like in the 1960s, that we get euphoric about the possibilities which might at least look that way, uh, very good. And so the people get euphoric and they don't know anything about the pharmacology. They don't know anything about the dangers. They don't know about interaction with other drugs and stuff like that. We really have to teach them well and to train them well in practical settings, not just by uh, uh, giving them theoretical lectures. You know, they have to take, that's my personal opinion, and the opinion of all the researchers and therapists in the past um, is, uh, is congruent to that. You have to have self-experiences with the studies in a controlled therapeutic setting. And you also have to look at people which are treating others and have a lot of experience in the background. And then they might supervise you when you are working with the patient and they sit in the corner and observe you. So that they can supervise you and give you tips and, and advice. You know, that is the appropriate way to learn these therapies, not just by an online course. That might be helpful in respect to theoretical issues and certain ways of understanding things. But you have to have the practical experience in respect to an own experience, 
or some of them, at least five was the consensus in the 1960s. You have to have five self-experiences and you have to have a training in a very appropriate fashion together on a practical level in clinics, doing their work with experienced therapists. Then we might come up with a new therapeutic option. Otherwise, we also might fail. As always, Torsten, thank you very much for your wonderful opinion and information there. I'm Ben Clayden, and that has been today's episode of the Psychedelics in Medicine podcast on LSD, Synthesis, Stigma and Science with Dr. Torsten Passi. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please make sure to rate it and share it with friends and colleagues. A massive thank you for Dr. Torsten Passi once again for taking time to be here, and we will see you in the next episode as we enter the world of microdosing. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. <laughs>